Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, August 21st, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata. Joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer, Squire Train Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. We got everybody together in one room today. Uh, for the water cooler, I guess let's jump into it. Let's talk about what we've been doing uh, this past week. Uh, well, let, let me start off by saying that it, it really seems like Halloween is being canceled this year. You know, all the the haunted events that I usually go to, like Halloween Horror Nights and Not Scary Farm and uh, Queen Mary and uh, all these things are being, you know, not happening. And, uh, you know, I usually end up going to the Magic Castle a couple times. They celebrate Halloween in grand style. They, like, theme out the castle. And, I, you know, you you dress up. And uh, that's not open this year, it seems. And, uh, you know, West Hollywood, where I live, has the biggest Halloween party in at least the United States, if not the world. I'm I'm pretty much guessing that's not going to happen. Uh, so basically, Halloween is, is is kind of canceled, and that that's disappointing because it's it's my favorite holiday. So, uh, in it being my favorite holiday, it's not something we usually like decorate for or anything. But because it's being kind of canceled everywhere this year, we've kind of decided that we're going to try to decorate our home, like start start the Halloween decoration tradition here uh, in, in our house um because uh you know we want to feel halloween even though it's canceled you know everywhere outside of our doors uh but so uh we we learned this week that i never knew this guys like i am not an insane person that that knew this apparently halloween decorations go on sale in like the beginning of august did did you guys know that that like it's good stores yeah yeah. oh absolutely it's like a big thing august yeah august (laughs) Once school supplies go away, the area gets occupied by Halloween masks. Uh, as somebody who used to work at Target for years and years and years before I was able to write professionally, uh, let me tell you this. A Halloween 
section at, at Target is hell on earth because everybody's putting on the masks <laughs> and dropping the masks and you know, no, they never know where the mask goes and management gets mad at you because the masks are on the wrong place. It's not your fault. So yeah, I, yeah. I was, I was wondering about this this year because Halloween stores are, are opening and I can't imagine how that's safe this year because people literally go into that store, they put stuff on their face and then they put it back on a shelf. Like how, I don't understand how that's even close to safe this year, but I guess we'll, we'll see. Well, Chris, I went. I can tell you about this. Okay. Oh, all right. <laughs> tell us, Peter. Uh, I went to a spirit Halloween store, which I'm sure you guys have. Do you guys have that in Texas, Jacob? Oh, yeah. Spirit there's big spirits everywhere. Yeah. I've, been yeah. to, I've been to many spirits. They're all over the, all yeah, over they, the place. They usually occupy like like a closed down Toys R Us or something like that. Um, in L.A., real estate is a lot more expensive, so that it's usually a much smaller store, like a Pier 1 Imports or something. So we went to the only spirit that was like close to us. There was one in Century City near near uh, Sony, uh, and it was really small. It only had like two of those like animatronic figures. That's why we wanted to go. We wanted like to get like our Halloween Horror Nights fix where you go up and you like you stand on the thing and then the the animatronic you know starts saying things but only one of them worked they had two of them only one of them worked uh they still are trying to sell masks and costumes all over the place it like i i thought maybe there would be like some kind of pivot and there isn't any signs like being like don't try on these things (laughs) don't touch uh so it, it seems like it's full steam ahead on there I, I guess they probably purchased all these things way before you know they assumed that holding is going to get canceled um so so there's your answer chris uh I, nothing is being done about uh, it. so my answer is we're doomed and we will never get rid of this virus very good to hear thank you <laughs> uh yeah yeah um but okay but you jacob you were talking about target and target i don't think puts their their Halloween stuff out until like September after, like you said, the, the uh, back to school stuff gets taken down. I wasn't aware that like, you know, Michael's and uh, Marshall's, which I didn't even know was a big Halloween thing and 99 cent store. We, we went to like all these different places, TJ Maxx. Like uh, I, I, I fell down a hole guys. I was like looking on YouTube and I found that there's these YouTube channels of people that like their life, like they actually they're, they're professional YouTube channels that their life is every day. They go to a different store and they just basically like you come along with them and they just show you everything that's like in a like section of that store. So I was like looking at these YouTube channel uh, channels, like seeing where, you know, what what Halloween stuff is where. Anyways, we went on this big adventure get, getting Halloween uh, decorations. We bought a bunch of stuff. Uh, I'll say Big Lots was the best. Uh, store that we went to so if you're looking for Halloween decorations I'd recommend Big Lots if, if you have one of those near you and a big surprise 99 cent store uh, has like aisles of Halloween stuff most of it's kind of cheap e like stuff but we, we got a bunch of stuff there I think we got like five things for five bucks so uh, there's a video going up next week uh, on Ordinary Adventures showing our Halloween shopping trip but um, yes, Halloween has started now at, uh, you know, in my house. So so there we go. Uh, Chris, what have you been up to? Uh, I released a new episode of 21st Century Spielberg. Uh, please go listen to it. It took I'm a little late on this episode just because I've been having issues, um, but it's up. It's live. It's uh, it's on Warhorse and Lincoln, two very good later period 
uh, Spielberg movies, especially Lincoln, which is just phenomenal. And War Horse is a great movie. I know people sort of shrug War Horse off as being like too sappy and too overly sentimental. But man, that movie is good and it has some great set pieces in it. So uh, please go listen to that episode, rate it on iTunes, all that stuff. Uh, It helps me out a great deal. I am also team War Horse is good, Chris. Yes, thank you, Jacob. That's why you're my favorite. Chris, you need you need to get Dave Chen on your, your follow-up podcast because he rated War Horse number one movie, I think, of that year. And he's been getting shit about it ever since. Well, then. Like, see? <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, HT, what have you been up to? I completed the Chloe Ting two-week ab shred challenge. Yeah, I um I talked about this last week where I started a two-week sort of workout challenge um, from Chloe Ting, who is this YouTube vlogger. I actually wrote about it in the quarantine stream recently, and I I didn't really expect myself to keep up with it as I hate working out and. Um, I'm pretty bad at working out consistently, but because there was a schedule for this, it was all on her website, I kind of somehow found the motivation to do it every day and am kind of now uh, motivated to work out more. It's weird. It's like the two-week ab shred challenge is not really something that I expected to get abs out of, although I did get some definition hidden somewhere underneath my belly fat, (laughs) but it was really exciting. And um, just doing it, every day motivated me to like actually potentially keep up working out and do more of these at least Chloe Ting's challenges it's a good sort of beginner way of uh, getting into working out and um it's her challenges are like a combination of hit uh workouts and um Pilates hit is like high interval um workouts where you work out for like 30 seconds intensely and take a five second break so it's um it's good for beginners i'd say although yes it, it is really intense but i'm i'm ex- I'm just really happy that i i finished this i don't i didn't post a picture or i don't have a picture of the after because i didn't think i would finish this so i didn't I didn't take a before picture so that's something that's just gonna be for my own sort of self-benefit <laughs> but uh maybe at some point i'll do another challenge and post a picture but i'm just really happy that i did this and um i'm excited that i com- kind of completed one of my quarantine goals let's see now ht that means you got to take a picture now so if you continue that you'll have a picture you'll have like a before and after exactly exactly so i, I will do it for the next one okay i my promise uh, for now and uh i wasn't part of this but the slash film team it did a seance this past week. We released the video of that online, so you can actually go watch it. I'm going to link that in the show notes. But I'd, Jacob, I guess, tell us about this. Well, start with Chris uh, on Twitter. I think it's a joke. Tweeted that he would like to do an online seance as seen in the film Host, which you've discussed uh, on this podcast before. And the director of that film responded, right, Chris? Yeah, it was it was half joke, half serious. And Rob Savage, who's the guy who directed it, um. He follows we follow each other on Twitter because a, a while ago I gave his short film uh, Dawn of the Deaf uh, a good review and he followed me and he thanked me for reviewing that. So we have a somewhat good relationship. And yeah, so I, I half jokingly tweeted that I would be up for a Zoom seance because weirdly enough, after that movie came out, I saw lots of people being like, I would never do this. And I thought that was silly because I would jump at the chance. And he was like, you know what? Let's let's really do this. I know a real uh, psychic, he said, who turned out to be actually a professional exorcist. Uh, and so uh, 
I, I handed the reins over to Jacob because uh, I trust him better at organizing stuff and he made it happen. He and Rob and uh, everyone sort of came together and the, pretty much the entire cast of the movie got in on it as well. I, I, I guess the big question is, did you guys see any ghosts? Did you feel any ghosts? I oh, mean, this is where I have to say I felt nothing. I was ready to have like a ghost experience, but uh, when R.H. R.H. Davis, our professional exorcist who is serving as our psychic conduit here, said, like, you know, open your mind. If you see an image or a message, bring it to the group and we'll see if I'm, if I'm trying to communicate with you. I opened my mind as wise as we go and I had nothing. But whereas people on the on the actual seance, like Rob Savage, the director, uh, was told he was being communicated with by his old dead dog. Uh, so one of those cases where, you know, I walked away from the seance, not entirely convinced anything supernatural had happened, but I will admit that compared to the host, where a seance was people dying and screaming, a seance that was essentially 80 minutes, yeah, we were 80 minutes of um, people like sharing pleasant memories of loved ones and being told that our dead grandparents are proud of us or proud of us. was a very, it was, it was like being told like, Oh, the movie stay on is where everybody dies. The real life stay on is where you leave feeling. Oh, that was very nice. That was a surprisingly pleasant thing to have happened to me today. Yeah. It was a very positive experience, which I was happy to come away with because I was probably the most frightened of the, of this, of the seance. I am a big, big believer in ghosts and I was pretty scared going into it and, a little still a little scared coming out despite the positive and warm environment that it was i think because i really did not want to experience anything i feel i might have closed myself off to any actual happenstances so i don't know if it was just like my paranoia i don't know if i actually did feel anything but i did have a lot of trouble sleeping after that and i was so i was tossing turning a lot for like the next two nights and uh didn't get good sleep this week but i don't think it's because of anything spiritual i hope or maybe I don't hope. I don't know. I'm really, anyways, if you do <laughs> believe in ghosts, prepare for, if you do, and you do want to uh, participate in a seance, prepare for some sleepless nights, but that might just be your own paranoia is my experience. I will say I bought a big package of uh, incense for this. I, I bought the specific kind the exorcist recommended, which is a copal. And I really like it. I'm burning it right now while I podcast. It makes my room smell nice. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, professional exorcist, for teaching me how to make my office smell like a ghost den. Yeah, it's it's, it's also keeping the ghost comfortable in your home. Yeah. Well, apparently this one is supposed to um, evoke positive spirits. So I'm only if I am summoning ghosts with it, I am keeping them happy. Okay. Like I said, I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can go watch the seance uh, yourself and see see exactly what happened. Let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading this week? I read two things. I read A Sellout by Simon Rich. It's a four-part short story or novella published in New Yorker. And it published close to a decade ago, but it was the source material for An American Pickle, the new <laughs> Seth Rogen movie that Simon Rich adapted himself uh, into the screenplay. And I liked American Pickle. I'll talk about it in the what we've been watching section. Uh, but I loved this novella. I think Simon Rich's writing is a lot sharper and funnier and meaner and more honest uh, in his short story work than it is uh, in the film. And like I said, I like the film's good, uh, but the short story is just, it feels more pointed. It feels like it, it has more of a purpose to it. Uh, and humorously, the 
the character, as you know, the, the film is about a man who's pickled for 100 years, wakes up in modern-day uh, America and meets his great-grandson. And in the short story, the great-grandson is Simon Rich himself, and he depicts himself as being the worst possible 21st century male. Uh, so much more worse, so, so much worse than Seth Rogen's character uh, in the film. Uh, so it's this really pointed critique of himself in a way that probably could not translate the film, but works really well on the page. And you can find that online for free. Um, on the New Yorker. Uh, it's also collected in one of his books. And once I finished the story, I immediately went to Amazon and bought one of his short story collections because I, I enjoyed it so much. So that's a sellout by Simon Rich, a good way to follow up watching American Pickle. I'm also- wait, wait, wait. So in the in the novella, he doesn't fall into the pickles? Oh, he does. It, it's, it's the same setup, yeah. Okay, okay. Sorry, I was confused there because you were saying it was... Okay, so it's just... You're just saying from the point of view, it's yeah. just him critiquing himself. Okay, yeah, I get it. It, it is very much... Uh, the the, the 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 grandson character who Seth Rogen also plays in the film is essentially himself in the story, and there is a lot of self loathing on display that I really found very funny. Uh, but yeah, that's that's that's, that's called Sellout. Uh, I also read Dream Team by Jack McCollum. This is part of my uh, post The Last Dance reading. It's a book uh, about the 1992 Olympics Dream Team, uh, the basketball team, which was Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. Uh, Larry Bird and all the best players of that era all come together to obliterate everybody else at the Olympics. And I realized I did not know like the, very much about this after it was touched on in the documentary series. So I bought this book and John McCollum is, it was a veteran uh, sports illustrated writer. He was on the, the main NBA beat throughout the eighties and nineties. So he was literally there throughout all of this. And so much of the uh, stories in this book are from him literally being in the same room with Michael Jordan or being in the same room with Larry Bird. Uh, and, so, so he, he actually becomes a character in the book um, in a way that I really enjoy. It's, it's not like, you know, him reporting, this is what I was told, this is what I heard. It's like, this is what I saw. And it's extremely entertaining. Uh, it, it would make for a really wonderful movie because all these incredible athletes off sometimes being irresponsible, sometimes being like best possible teammates. Uh, and eventually they just go to the Olympics and trounce everybody really hard. But uh, most of the book is about the formation of the team, the practices, the you know, the, the press surrounding it, how it's changed the way NBA was seen the worldwide stage is extremely entertaining. That is a dream team by Jack McCollum. I remember how huge that was when it happened. It was like, you know, I didn't even watch sports and I, like, I was so interested in it. It was like the Avengers had come together to represent our our country in the Olympics. So it, it was super exciting. And uh, yeah, it seems like so long ago at this point. Uh, you know, so so long that we could get excited for you know supporting this country in the worldwide stage in anything. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, is it like is no, that no. harsh? But like, no. I feel like no, I I, I agree, I, I agree entirely, and I it what an upsetting thing to think about. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I I feel embarrassed for our country at this point, and I'm hoping that changes soon. But okay, uh, let's move on to what we what we've been watching. Uh, let's start with Lovecraft Country, which is now on HBO. It airs on Sundays. Jacob, tell us about it. I talked about this book a few years ago on this podcast, and this HBO adaptation so far is a very faithful adaptation of the tone, which is what if a Lovecraft horror story, but set uh, in 1950s America with black characters who have to worry about monsters, but also Jim Crow laws and racist white, whites who want to kill them because they're black. I found this to be an extremely... Uh, funny, charming, terrifying, exciting hour of television. The pilot is everything I wanted out of an adaptation of the book. Uh, but I was on the audience for this. I love Pulp Horror. 
I love, you know, uh, American history, the, even the dark side to be explored. I love when they collide. I love historical, historical horror fiction for me is an incredibly underrated subgenre. Uh, so I want to hear from Ben, who I, who may not be as quite the immediate hook for this. Uh, what do you think, Ben? I loved it. I've never read an H.P. Lovecraft book, um, and I only know, uh, I guess, of him through hearing you talk about him, Jacob, because I know that you're a big fan of his his writing and and you've been grappling with his legacy for a long time, uh, and and also like through you know pop culture references, like he's he's been such an influential you know presence in the world of science fiction and fantasy that um, you know even if you're like me and you've never read any of his stuff, you, you you're definitely aware of his influence on the genre. So um, the way that this show grapples with that legacy, I, I've have found very compelling in the the pilot episode, which is the only one that's been released to the public so far. Um, but man, I, I was just like fully hooked on this show, you know, from the start, I thought it was exceptionally well-directed and the casting is great. Jonathan Majors, who I really fell for in The Last Black Man in, in San Francisco, um, is, you know, a totally different type of presence here. He, he seems to be like one of these performers who really like uh, vanishes into every role that he plays. Um, and Journey Smollett or Journey Smollett Bell, I'm not sure where she's going by these days, but, um, I, I've yet to see Birds of Prey, but I know she was in that recently and, and she is a, a really bright, uh, interesting presence in this show as well. Uh, Courtney B. Vance, I thought was, was really excellent as well. Um, all three of them, you know, get in this, uh, in this car and just drive, uh, you know, across the country. And, and the, I guess the big thing that I, um, found in this, uh, pilot episode was, they set something up in the in the first few minutes of the episode. There's this mystery, and you know they talk about like this town that they're trying to go to. And as soon as they did that, and based on like what I had read about this show going into it, I thought, okay, that's the season one arc is them, you know, going and and traveling the country to get to this location. And they get to that location by the end of the first episode. And now I'm like th- even more thrilled to continue watching the show because I have no idea what's going to happen next because my uh, you know expectations were completely blown away and, and surpassed. And I've heard uh, Misha Green, the showrunner um, and, and creator of the series, talk about how she has this real like kitchen sink approach to storytelling where she just like doesn't like holding back things for you know, long arcs. She wants to put every creative thing in it that she can immediately as soon as possible. And then like force uh, more creativity to continue the story from there. So I'm thrilled at like the pacing of the show so far. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I've not been this impressed by a pilot. I was going <laughs> to say in a long time, but uh, I was very impressed by the Watchmen pilot that HBO did not too long ago. So I guess it hasn't been that long, but still I think Lovecraft country and Watchmen so far, Watchmen ended up being like one of my favorite first seasons of anything ever. So um, that's a, a very high bar to uh, for, for Lovecraft Country to meet, but um, it's certainly on the way up. So uh, hopefully it, it gets there. And yeah, I want to, um, oh, sorry. I wanted to interject here and say that uh, like much like the Lovecraft Country book, the show, I've seen the first five episodes. It's, it almost turns into like an anthology series in the sense that, after that setup in that first episode, uh, the episodes themselves start to stand on their own and tell almost entirely self-contained stories that also are somewhat connected to that main story. And that actually goes a long way to keeping the show really fresh. It's not, it's not like it doesn't suffer from that problem. A lot of modern TV shows where it's like, this is a, this is a nine hour movie. We just broke up into nine episodes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, 
it's the madman approach where the episodes can really are really just like short stories that just happen to tell an overall narrative uh, i think you're, the watchman comparison is interesting ben for a number of reasons because they're both you know these uh genre heavy stories that are ultimately about race in america but the novel of lovecraft country is where i first became aware of the 1921 uh tulsa race massacre oh, wow. which, is, which is a um a plot point in the novel and i'm assuming will be a plot point in the book as well huh. uh so i think that it's fascinating that two hbo shows within a year of each other both about superheroes and monsters uh will, will are directly shining a light on one of the most like overlooked tragedies of american history yeah. uh, anyway peter what do you think about this uh, like Ben, I have not read any Lovecraft, but unlike Ben, I feel like I have because I play tabletop games and there's a lot of tabletop games that I, I love that I've played many, many hours, like, you know, Arkham Horror, Eldritch Horror, all those games. And I feel like I have, even though I've never read a, a sentence of of Lovecraft, I feel like I've lived in those worlds. Is that silly to say, Jacob? Oh, no, not at all. I That's one of the... Um probably one of the best side effects of this is that Lovecraft himself, since he was a racist and a bigot, his work requires you to read it with an asterisk with you. You have to think, okay, this guy, this is oftentimes brilliant imagination, uh, but is oftentimes just full <laughs> of awfulness. So the idea that it's been yeah. spun off and taken a hold of by other people who have managed to take his best ideas and build them in things that you can enjoy without that baggage is the best possible solution. Uh, as long, you know, that's why so many, you, you see so many examples of like, creators of color working within the Cthulhu mythos as, as it's called uh, and acknowledging that hey um, the guy who made this shit is was a bad dude but we're reclaiming <laughs> this for ourselves because his ideas are good and, that's, and so yeah. sorry I'd hardly interrupt you Peter go ahead I, I also love that there's a whole monologue that's kind of speaking towards that like in the beginning of this uh, speaking of the beginning I don't want to spoil this episode at all but the opening of this thing is bonkers crazy like, I, like once that opening scene happened, I was like, okay, what are we watching? I am totally in for this. This is, this is incredible. Uh, and, um, it's interesting that, uh, this, this show comes out at this time, you know, th th this episode in particular, I'm not sure if the, the whole series is going to be this, but it's really about, you know, uh, black harassment by white racist police officers uh, could it be any more relevant like it feels like it was almost planned but obviously not um and uh you know i i guess i guess at the end of the day you know the this this episodes you know you know who who are the real monsters shake up is it the tentacle demons or is it the the racist white cops uh it's actually it, this is very very interesting uh Last week, I, I spoke about uh, Harlem Unbound, the Call of Cthulhu RPG supplement that I bought that lets you play as characters in 1920s Harlem and has rules for playing racial tension and rules for how to incorporate racism into a game. And one of the things it says in the rules is that, you know, the, mon the Cthulhu mythos, the giant monster elder gods are not racist. Um, uh, and for you, for you, you, can, you can say that, you know, a white racist character is taking advantage of this, uh, but it's important to note that, you know, uh, the white racists on the ground, the humans are always going to be worse than the monsters, and, you, and your and your play should reflect that. And, I, and I, I'm curious to see if the show leans in that as well because I think that's the right approach. Yeah, I really enjoyed this first episode. I'm totally in. So I, I basically agree with everything you guys said. So I have nothing more. I actually, to I want to just throw in one more thing. I probably should have put my name on the dock, but I didn't because I'm an idiot. But I feel like I already talked about the show. <laughs> but one thing I really love about this show, um, and I haven't watched Underground, which is Misha Green's other show, but apparently she did this with that show too, 
is the the soundtrack approach where she doesn't just use music she uses like all sorts of like mixed media things like she uses like spoken word poetry uh there's one episode where she literally uses like audio from like a nike commercial and it it, it sounds like weird but it's a really cool idea where the soundtrack is just layered with with really unconventional things just like not just music it's like all sorts of stuff pulled from other sources and i i've i've never really seen that or heard that before in other other like uh, films and tv shows so i I think that's a really neat idea and it makes me actually want to check out underground to see how she uses it there too yeah i was gonna say has anybody seen underground because everybody said that was a great show but it was on wgn and no one saw it and it didn't got no you know acclaim at the emmys and golden globes and stuff no No, it's not something i need to though (laughs) (laughs) were you gonna say jacob so I feel like there's one moment in this episode that I really want to touch on because it's a moment that made me realize that I love the book as well, which is it's early on in the episode, the main character finds a hardcover collection of H.P. Lovecraft short stories in his uncle's library, his uncle who is a also a, a fan of pulp, pulp literature and horror and science fiction. And there's this, this they have this conversation about how, you know, Lovecraft was also was, was a racist and and the, the idea that um the things you love can hurt you and like, you know, you can love something and realize it doesn't love you back. Uh, I'm not black. So I can't emphasize, emphasize with it in the way that these characters do, but I do with the, with the, uh, the concept of, I want to love this. I do love this, but man, this thing does not care about me is something that I find uh, very moving and a really good way to enter this kind of show and this kind of uh, material. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Uh, I'll talk about what I've watched this week. I watched Magic Camp. This is a new movie on Disney Plus. Originally, this oh, was no, going to Peter. Why? <laughs> well, originally this was going to go to theaters. Uh, this is based on this fa- famous uh, magic uh, summer camp. It's called it's uh, Can- uh, Tannen's Magic Camp, and it's a, a place that a lot of famous magicians have come out of. Uh, there's actually a documentary called magic camp strangely that 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 covered this material uh which isn't amazing uh this movie was supposed to be originally supposed to be a theatrical uh it was dumped on disney plus uh you know for a variety of reasons uh i i like magic ben i i have to give this a chance i put it on uh i will say this i put it on kitcher was like really and by the end of it she was like Okay, I actually kind of like that. Uh, but uh, I'll say this. Um, it's directed by Mark Waters, who, what, he, he directed, like, the Lindsay Lohan movies of, like, the 90s. Is that correct? Mean I don't have Girls, any. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he had some good hits there. This movie definitely feels like it was made in the 90s, and it was, like, just uncovered today. Uh, it's, uh, I, I guess I should say, even though this would not change my opinion of this at all, that, uh because any movie that involves magic probably has some people I know that I'm friends with or friendly with. Uh, this this movie has had a bunch of consultants and hand doubles and stuff of people I know. So, you know, that disclaimer is put out there. Um, it, uh, it's really it's really cheesy at times. The kids are mostly bad actors and they're poorly written cliches. Uh, for the most part, there's the bully, the rich girl, the shy girl. Uh, there isn't much more to them than the, you know, what is kind of presented in, like their introductions. And, uh, 
that said, uh, there the adult cast is actually quite good. Adam Devine, uh, Jillian uh, Jacobs, Jeffrey Tambor, who I think was originally supposed to be uh, Steve Martin originally, but it was replaced by Jeffrey Tambor. Um, they are all pretty great in this, and um, you know, I I appreciate this movie. It's not like Now You See Me where it's all like CG magic and stuff like that. Th- this movie. I would say 98% of the magic is actually real magic that's being performed on set that like by either the, these kids or by hand doubles or whatever. And I, I can totally see that as a magician uh, approaching that. And that makes me appreciate it because usually when I see magic in movies and it's just like, you know, some CG of something floating in the air, it really tests me off. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, I, I was about halfway through this movie and I was expecting to kind of like give this like a really bad review on, on this podcast. But by the end of the movie, there's some real heart here in the end. And it really does come around. And I'm not going to say this isn't a, a great movie. This I'm not even sure this is a good movie, but uh, <laughs> Kendra and I both cried in the end and uh, we, we enjoyed it. it. It was enjoyable. So I guess like what I'm saying is if uh, you're really looking for something to watch, you know, that you can put on the background or something. I don't know. I guess this isn't a really great uh, recommendation, but I it, it ended up winning me in the end. Uh, but it is, it really does feel like you're watching a movie from the 1990s. So, yeah, there's that. Uh, speaking of which, while we were watching that, I don't know how it came up, but well, we were talking about Can't Hardly Wait which I loved when it came out in the 1990s and uh, Kitra had not seen it in years. So we went back and rewatched that. It's now streaming on Freeform. Uh, I, for the most part, I think this this movie still holds up as a teen movie. Um, I know it like if you go to Rotten Tomatoes, it's like like really rotten. I don't like I, I don't understand how so many people hate this movie. Uh so many critics hate this movie. Like I, I do get it's like of the same vein of other teen movies, so it has those kind of cliches and uh I guess at the core of it it's really about this guy that has a crush on uh you know Jennifer Love Hewitt who you know who he's never really had conversations with and he's like ready to like give up everything for this one girl. But at the same time and, and, and that seems like, you know, I don't know, I, I guess, that, does that hold up today? I don't know if that holds up today, but I will say in high school, I think it was like that, right? Like you, you had these crutches. It was like your mind was in a different uh, place. Uh, th- this movie has the most amazing teen movie soundtrack, I think, out of any teen movie. Uh, this it has a great ensemble, ensemble cast. It's... Um, I love movies that take place. I love coming of age movies. This is a coming of age movie. I love movies that take place over the course of like one night. This is one of those. I love movies that feature ensemble casts that like have stories that like are interconnected and intertwined throughout like one location. That that is this movie. Um, I love the love and attention that the two directors give even like the the small background characters like there's small background characters that like don't even have lines that have arcs in this movie if you, if you watch them in the background and what what happens over the course of this like one night uh house party so i don't know 
I really like Can't Hardly Wait. Like, <laughs> what do you guys think? Like, do you guys like Can't Hardly Wait? What What is your feeling on this movie? You know, now uh, twenty years later, I guess. I love Can't Hardly Wait. This is one of my favorite like high school comedies that came out when I was in high school, and it's uh, it's definitely you know cl- cliche and you know uh, a, a bit hokey, but like that's also what what makes it good. Um, uh, yeah, it's I, I don't have like any negative things to say about it. It just it it perfectly captures you know just silly you know teen <laughs> life in the early two thousands through you know. Uh, a, a Hollywood lens. It's just, it's fun. I love um, the actor's name is uh, Charlie Corsmo who played Jack in hook. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, Peter Pan's son. He, his role in, in that movie, I really enjoy like the, there's that whole moment where he sings um, paradise city by guns and roses. <laughs> and like that, that whole set piece uh, I think still really, really works. And his, it, I feel like he's the real protagonist in the movie. Like Ethan Embry is good in it, but he sort of feels like, you know, his story is less interesting to me than the Charlie Corsmo one. But um, but yeah, I like that movie, too. Also, it has a um, an appearance by a uh, very young Jason Siegel in a bit part. Is he? Where is he in the movie? I don't even recognize him. He he's the guy who's sitting next to um, the stoner that Jennifer Love Hewitt tries oh. to find out who, who Preston who Preston is. And he's like, uh, he's like. I mean, he's Preston, and Jason Siegel is just like sitting next to him with watermelon, like nodding, nodding, and like yeah, agreeing with everything he says. Oh, wow, I'm gonna have to pull up a clip of that. <laughs> That's so fun. Uh, okay, the other thing I watched was uh, Jacob. You mentioned I think a couple weeks back. Uh, did you mention it on here, or was it just in your quarantine stream, the Defunct Land? Uh, I just wrote about it in quarantine stream. I've haven't talked about it here, but I am a big Defunct Land fan. Yeah, this is a YouTube channel that does these, I guess, video essays on theme park history, and it usually delves into the unknown and probably uh, sometimes hidden in you know the closet, uh, hidden in the dungeon stories of you know the making of these theme parks and things that have happened. And they made their first documentary feature, which uh, was funded on Indiegogo and was released on YouTube. And it is a movie called Live from the Space Stage, a Helix story. And this is a documentary about in the 1980s, they in Disneyland, they were trying to get more of a teen audience in there during to like they weren't really doing that well, to be honest. Um, And they uh, were trying to get more of a teen audience in there. And they had this idea to create this rock and roll band that was kind of like kiss meets star Wars. And they would be playing on the stage that's right next to space mountain. And this is, so Disney created for this one summer, they created this band called Helix. And it's basically like, you know, if you imagined like a star Wars band, but not like the cantina band, like the basis is like this seven foot tall white, uh, furry suited alien like a uh, Chewbacca and he's playing the bass. The main singer is in like a, a, in a warrior space girl outfit. Uh, the percussion player has like a, a frog mask. looks like an amphibian. Uh, the keyboardist like rides in like this vehicle that looks like uh, something out of star Wars. And it has like, he's like a robot. Like uh, it, it was. Um, so this only happened for one summer and uh, was kind of, 
forgotten. Uh, this documentary is like a very talking head approach, talking to all the surviving band members and some people that, uh, you know, saw them this one summer. Uh, there's some vintage footage, but, you know, this is the early 80s, so it's very low quality. Uh, the, I guess, like, you know, this is like sometimes you have in life where you have something that's like completely manufactured artificially by a big corporation and it just feels like that and it doesn't connect with people. And then other times you have that and somehow the artificial beginnings can turn into some kind of magic. And I think that's what the story is here that, you know, people really responded to them. They, they had their huge group of fans and it only lasted one summer, but this, this is the story um, that recently they, uh, the podcast podcast, the ride talked about, this band they found out the story of this band they had an episode about this band and uh they that is kind of like i I think spawned this whole documentary and they're a big part of this documentary as well um the i guess if i have any criticism of this documentary it is you kind of expect this kind of documentary to in the end like you know the the fans came out of the woodwork and the band comes back together to perform one last time for like, you know, like a, a, a concert at like some convention somewhere or, or, you know, I don't know. They find the long lost recordings because Disney actually did, made like this recording of them and was planning on releasing it as a record uh, or something. And it really is nothing that the ending I guess spoiler. The ending is basically that a podcast discovers them and talks about them. Do you know what I mean? Like, so uh, there really isn't a, a great conclusion there, but uh, it is a, a fascinating look at a you know small small period of Disneyland history. And uh, I wish I could see this band <laughs> in, in Disneyland because they they even have like this uh, almost like a John Williams esque poster that they made for this band and like their guitars have like lightsaber like lights coming out of them oh that was another thing like they had like fog on the stage and like they actually on the end of their guitars had like these lasers so they would like put it through the like fog and it would be like lightsabers and uh there's all sorts of neat things with this band i i wish i could uh could experience this in some other way other than the really really bad vintage 80s videotape footage that they have here but but that's all we have. And um, and also, interestingly, I don't want to call Defunct Land out, but uh, I love Defunct Land. But I watched this this movie till the you know the bitter end, the end of the credits. And at the very end of the credits, like there's this it ends with like some of the footage in this documentary is copyrighted and we do not have permission I, I'm paraphrasing here. We don't have permission for all the footage here. We tried to contact the people and haven't heard back or fair use. And I'm like, I don't think that's how movie releasing works. I don't think, right, Jacob? Like, can, can you do that? I, and I guess they did it. They did. I, this is a case of like YouTube Wild West. Um, <laughs> beyond that, uh, I don't know. I'm, it reminds me of uh, the band, the New Pornographers. Their first album, Mass Romantic, has an image of a naked couple uh, embracing in a field with a goat behind them. And it's a piece of art they found at a garage sale. And they hunted for years to find out who it belongs to so they could pay them using the album cover and they never found them. But it's, it's still the album cover. So <laughs> I guess I guess it happens unless someone sues you. So, yeah. Um, okay, Jacob, uh, what have you been watching? Uh, 
Uh, Peter, I've watched a show that you need to watch uh, called The World's Toughest Race. It is a 10-episode uh, reality competition series uh, streaming on Amazon Prime. It is essentially Survivor, The Amazing Race, uh, uh, Man vs. Wild, all mushed together into something that feels like the next generation of what a competition reality show could be. It is it, this hugely ambitious thing. It follows the latest edition of a thing called the Eco Challenge, which is this uh, a series of races across you know very dangerous uh places or not not necessarily dangerous but hostile environments and this this edition is across the uh fiji uh and it basically just it's 66 teams uh each of four people uh, there must be at least one woman on each team uh which is interesting progressive rule and um they essentially have to go through and hit a series of checkpoints and it and how you get to the checkpoint is sometimes determined, like you must walk, you must bike, you must canoe, you must build a raft and go down the river, you must white, white water raft, you must scale this um, mountain, go down this waterfall, repel. Uh, but people are allowed to take shortcuts, they're allowed to move their own pace, they can rest anytime they want to, they can power through without sleep. Uh, uh, there are five camps between uh, scattered across the whole thing where you must pause for at least 90 minutes, uh, where you can have like a, where it's warm food and, and medicine, <laughs> everything you may need. But beyond that, it's just a matter of, you know how intense these teams want to go to get across Fiji and get to the end and win the grand prize. If team one does get hundred thousand dollars, but as you quickly learn the course of the show is that most people are not here to win. Most people are here to see if they can do it, if they can reach the end, if it's possible for them to like survive the endurance test. So like there is like the New Zealand team who are the, the champions. Like what one guy described as the Michael Jordan of adventure racing is what this is called, and they're going without sleep. They're going nonstop through the night. They don't stop. They don't eat. They just keep on going and they train their bodies and minds to trek through the jungle and go through the Pacific ocean and swim and deal with all these intense, you know, uh, uh, pressure situations. And there are teams that are, you know, there's one team that's, they're all black Americans who are, who want to prove that they can be part of the sport. There's one team where it's a guy and his daughters, uh, and he used to race all the time, um, when they were young and now they're old enough to race. He's doing with them. There's one team where this man in his 60s this is actually, interestingly, this contestant is a old friend of my father-in-law, which is how I first discovered this show, who is a seasoned amateur athlete and adventure racer who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So he wants to do one last adventure race before he loses his faculties. So he's on a team with his son. And it's all there's like dozens of teams. And even though there's 66 teams, the show probably follows maybe you know 15 of them, uh, bouncing between them throughout the show. And I became so invested in why they're doing this. Some of them are just here because I have a competition in them and they want to win and they're good at this. Some of them have a personal reason, a personal drive that comes out. There's some really moving moments where people oftentimes at their breaking point explain why they can't stop and why they have to keep on going. And the production values are insane on this. Like there's drone shots, there's helicopters, there are GoPros attached to everybody. There are embedded camera crews and things get legit dangerous. People get hypothermia, people get heat stroke, people break bones. There's emergency air evacuations by, by a helicopter. And there's one scene during a particular dangerous water crossing where the cameraman embedded with his team turns the camera on himself and talks to the camera saying, you know, we're in a lot of danger here. Here's what I'm about to do. And you realize, oh my God, the camera crew are also in danger at all times. Uh, but this is the world's toughest race, it's called. It's on Amazon. The one false note is that Bear Grylls, the host, um, you know, celebrity survivalist, he's so clean and well made up that when he pops on the screen, I'm like, screw off, Bear Grylls. You're not doing this <laughs> real. Everybody else is bleeding and sweating and puking and lying on the ground suffering of heat stroke. And then you're like, oh, this is tough, isn't it? And I'm like, fuck off, Bear Grylls. But beyond that, uh, it is... <laughs> An amazing show, and I was bowled over by it. And Peter, this is essentially Next Generation Survivor. I think you'd really enjoy it. It sounds more like Next Generation uh, 
uh, the, 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 what, what was the other race show? I'm blanking on it. Uh, Amazing Race. Amazing Race. Yeah. Then it does Survivor, but I will definitely check it out. Yeah, I recommend it to everybody. I, I, I was really, really hooked by this, and I found the production, like, just the production values alone are incredible, but man, all I'll say is the Spanish team, Team Spain. They're my guys. <laughs> team Spain. <laughs> I, I do feel like this show seems like the you version of all of the shows that you mentioned as an influence because it, it, it does feel like it's not like people trying to screw themselves o- each other over. It's it's them like trying to push themselves. And it's like y- you also go very much for, you know, these worldwide, you know, the, these people from the, around the world coming together to try to like do the to accomplish this thing just for the accomplishment, not for the like, you know, reward. Yeah, it's 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 definitely the, the top ten teams are definitely all really competitive. Like people like this is their job. Their job is to like get sponsors and adventure race. But then there's like the teams who are always in the back of the pack, and the show is a good job of balancing its time, the front and back and middle. And the back people, they just want to finish. Like there's one team, it's literally all men and women in their sixties, and and they just, they just want to prove they can do it. There's one team is military veterans, uh, some of whom um, have uh, suffered severe injuries in war, who want to prove they can do it, and so even though there's, a, there's an element of competition, like Team New Zealand is intense. They don't stop. They don't stop ever. Whereas the, <laughs> the teams at the back are like, man, can we do this? You see them, you see Team New Zealand like scale a mountain. Then you get to two episodes later when a, a back team gets there, they're struggling and they're pushing themselves to the limit and they're monologuing themselves and losing their minds over, can I do this? And you realize, man, Team New Zealand made it look easy. But the real drama is these, you know, more normal people who are struggling in the, because they need to prove something to themselves. And, Oh, Peter, it's so dramatic. It is so good. Tell me this. Don't give me any details. Does anybody get injured? Oh, yeah. There are, there are, within episode one, there is, there, there is somebody suffering from something so severe that you wonder if you will survive. Hmm. Okay. I'll check it out. What, what else? Have you, you mentioned American Pickle earlier. Yeah, I, I watched it and I'll quickly echo what people have said in the past few weeks, which is it's good. I think the first half is stronger than the back half, but Seth Rogen playing two characters is very good. And I, I just wish that it was less episodic. It feels like it eventually enters a cycle of here's one crazy scheme. Here's another crazy scheme. Here's another crazy scheme. As opposed to ever really finding a narrative through line. Uh, but its heart is always in the right place. It's often very funny. And the stream on HBO Max. There's no reason not to watch it. American Pickle is very good. Uh, and finally, I watched We Summon the Darkness. This was a Fantastic Fest movie, I think, last year that I missed. And it's streamed on Netflix now. And it's uh, a horror movie set against uh, the backdrop of satanic panic in the eighties, following a group of girls who head to a heavy metal concert in the middle of nowhere, meet a group of guys. There are murderers, occult murderers in the background and uh, things escalate from there. And the movie really buries where it's going. So I'll leave it there. It gets violent and weird and darkly funny. I wish it was funnier. I wish it was scarier. I wish it was a lot of things, but I will admit I was compelled by the whole thing. I, I just wish that it was, a little bit more on all cylinders as opposed to, I feel like it holds back when, when a heavy metal satanic panic horror movie should be full throttle guitar riffing its way through this material. It feels a little too restrained, but it, it's also short. It's 90 minutes. There's some very amusing stunt casting from a certain actor who I won't spoil here. Uh, that's uh, we summon the darkness now streaming on Netflix. Okay. And uh, let's move on to Brad. Brad, what have you been watching this week? Um, not much, but uh, I did watch and review the first season of a new adult animated series called Hoops on Netflix. 
Uh, it's created by comedian Ben Hoffman, who had his own show on Comedy Central at one point. It was, it was somewhat short-lived, but I, I enjoyed it at the time. Um, it had some kind of kind of Andy Kaufman-esque elements to it, and it was a very quirky, odd um, show. And he also did some work for Norm MacDonald's uh, equally short-lived uh, sports show on Comedy Central. Um, and he's I, I generally like his stuff. Um, the show stars Jake Johnson as a super foul-mouthed loser high school basketball coach uh, who just is trying to get his life together, has dreams of being like a, the coach of the Chicago Bulls and having an infinity pool. And it's just nonstop, you know, uh, inappropriate behavior from extremely unlikable characters where there's no morals or heart or anything like that involved. Um, and that's part of the reason why I didn't really like it all that much. Uh, it has some good laughs here and there. But overall, it just feels like the the writers are just trying to be as profane and obscene and inappropriate as possible, but without any of the cleverness that you find in shows like uh, Big Mouth or BoJack Horseman. This uh, this is it's adult animated fare with so much uh, vulgarity. Like I, I lost track of how many times they say fuck and dicks uh, and all the variations of it throughout this series. And it just becomes tiresome because it's crass for the sake of being crass with no real um, substantial thought put into the jokes. It's extremely immature. Um, and it was just frustrating. But it's there There were some moments in it where I was just like, see, this. if they had more of certain kinds of jokes, I would appreciate it. Uh, one of the things that I thought was just funny because it just felt so random and weird is there are recurring references to Jodie Foster's directorial debut, Little Man Tate. Um, for no real reason whatsoever. But there's literally at least one reference to that movie in pretty much every single episode of the show. Um, so I liked the quirkier, oddball bits of it, but overall the show is just kind of a, a misfire because of how just unnecessarily inappropriate it is without any real reason to be. It's really weird, Brad, because I, I've been listening to interviews with Jake Johnson and uh, and Ben Hoffman, and like Johnson in particular has been like, yeah, we made the show specifically because we wanted just to make something funny that like doesn't have anything to say about the world or any like heart or anything like that. It's just about the jokes. And so for for it to not still not work, um, you know, even though they like purposefully put the heart aspect of it aside is uh, is disappointing to hear. Yeah, because I, I don't mind when comedies do that. Like, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is full of the worst characters who learn nothing at all every single episode. But that show is really funny. It's it's really smart and sharp. Um, but this, this show just doesn't have that. You know, like uh, the times when they, you know, cut off the points when it feels like it's coming to a heartfelt moment or, or a lesson are funny, but they're few and far between compared to just the, the the filth that they throw at the screen and i'm i'm not one who's against body comedy like that at all i i love super raunchy comedy but in this case it's just it might just be because i watched it in you know uh throughout two days you know i basically binged it across two days there's 10 episodes that it was just too much for a short amount of time maybe it's more enjoyable if it's spread out as opposed to just being inundated with it you know for a few hours at a time um, but, but yeah, it's just, it just didn't land for me as, as well as I hoped it would. Okay. Uh, and where can people find that? It's on Netflix. Uh, I, I believe it's available starting today, actually. What else have you been watching? Uh, I am, I've also been watching Big Brother All-Stars, which just started within the past couple weeks. Uh, it's the second All-Star iteration of the reality series that's been going on for, I think this is the 22nd season. 
Uh, so it brings back players from previous games, a couple winners, uh, some runners up, some popular players, uh, and they're all playing against each other in a new house. It's a little weird because uh, the live shows where they have the votes for evictions, there's no live audience. So it's just Julie Chen Moonves in an empty studio and there's no clapping for the housemates when they get evicted or anything like that. And like they're doing the uh, eviction interviews, like space 10 feet apart on this big empty stage. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's big brother as usual so far. It's a little more interesting since you have these seasoned players and some of them really know uh, what they're doing, but it's also interesting because some of the older players are a little bit more cutthroat. Whereas the more recent seasons feel like they've had a little bit more community in addition to the, the spirit of competition but some of the older players still still kind of have this like um, I don't want to say like a mean streak, but they're just they're they're a little bit more fiercely competitive about it as opposed to trying to like work more uh, with the house guests. Like there's a lot more of a, a selfish gameplay element when when the it comes to the players who played in seasons that are like 10, 15 years past now. Okay, and where where can you watch Big Brother? All stars. Uh, uh, so it airs on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays each week on CBS. But you can uh, catch up all the time on uh, CBS.com and CBS All Access. Cool, Ben. What have you been watching? Uh, I rewatched La La Land, which is just a, a great, great movie. Um, Ryan Gosling is just, uh, and Emma Stone both are, are so uh, charming and wonderful in that movie, even though. Uh, you know, it's the standard rom-com thing where they run up against their own, uh, the, the um, shortcomings of their relationships and, and their, um, yeah, <laughs> their, their character flaws and all that kind of stuff. So they're not like perfect characters, but um, man, I just really love what Damien Chazelle did with this movie. And, and the music is so, so good. And um, it was just one of those where it was like a Friday night and I needed something pleasant to watch and, and uh, to try to take my mind off of the horrors of the world like i'm still not going outside as much as i can and staying home and i feel like the world is like moving on and being like yeah it's fine but like this pandemic is still happening people so anyway i'm i'm just uh i was looking for something to to uh take my mind off of that and la la land did it so um it's on hbo max right now if you want to check that out i i, I guess the only like qualm that i still have with the movie is something that i have had since the first time i saw it which is like i i don't fully understand um ryan gosling's character's uh insistence that he has to play what he views as like this pure form of jazz like the whole um john legend subplot where uh, gosling gets drafted into this band and and he's still able to play jazz music it's just like uh adapted for modern audiences and he is just like so averse to that and it feels like he's selling out in this profound way and i have always thought that like the movie um makes that stuff seem pretty good like not uh you know i think i think if i were to draw a complaint i would say that like chazelle should have made that song worse like it should have she should have made that less enjoyable experience for the audience if we're supposed to be fully empathetic with gosling's decision there so uh, i don't know if anybody else here has any uh, thoughts on La La Land that, that we haven't talked about before if anybody else has rewatched it lately but um I just yeah, want to interject and say that John Legend song is one of the best songs of the of the soundtrack so it it's is so good it's so good I might it might actually be the best one I know there are other ones that are more iconic but I think this one it's so good that it just yeah the whole that whole um arc rings 
uh, false, but I think it's just because Ryan Gosling's character is supposed to be more of an asshole than yeah. we kind of take him for. But because it's Ryan Gosling, he's so charming that you forgive him. And then this scene is like, oh, he actually is an asshole. But yeah. maybe he's almost miscast in that way because if they cast someone who is more um, obviously an asshole, then maybe it would work. But the Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone chemistry is so good. Yeah, and then you'd lose some of the, the inherent charm that he has too. So it's it's a tough balance to to walk, and I'm not sure that it walks it perfectly. But um, overall, I still really really love the movie. So I I will disagree. I I don't think that that John Legend song is all that great. Like it's it's kind of catchy, but it's clearly like very much like a manufactured like pop jazz song. And I just I think the bigger reason that I, I don't know I feel like it grinds me is that the the show that's put on along with it, you know, like then they very specifically like have Emma Stone's reaction to this or like those cheesy dancers and just the overall presentation of it. It's all just so phony compared to like what Ryan Gosling considers like the pure form of jazz where it's just about paying attention to the music and listening to the musicians. And so that's, I think that's why the, the song combined with just how the stage presence is. I'm just like, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> I guess I just, I, I feel like that's the great. I love that. <laughs> Oh, and that's and it's fine if you like it, but if you say it's the best song on the soundtrack, you're insane. I'm sorry. <laughs> Gauntlet Throne. He he talks about like um you know when he takes Emma Stone's character to the jazz club for the first time, and he's like you know doing his whole I'm a Damien Chazelle character who loves jazz and will explain it to you. Um, he talks about like the idea of adaptation and like the excitement of like how this form is so um you know, fluid and, and like ever changing. And I just feel like he doesn't apply that own, like the lessons that he loves from this art form to, <laughs> to, the, to his own career. Like he uh, is so stubborn in the movie about his one way of doing things where I feel like if you truly love jazz and like the, um, the underlying uh, associations that, that come with it, then he should be okay. Like being able to, um, I guess like, infect a new generation with a potential love for the classics that he clearly reveres so much but anyway yeah. that, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that I, I think for me what what sells it is the it's the full the full package because I, I also I'm reminded of the the scene where they're doing the um the photography session for the album cover I think or oh yeah and, and like and they're all wearing the, just like the stupidest fucking clothes and Ryan Gosling looks like a to, like a total douche nozzle at the keyboard yeah. like, especially when he has him like bite his lip with like, yeah the photographer yeah. bite his lip <laughs> oh god yeah I love that scene anyway yeah I, I yeah I, I I guess there there must be some sort of middle ground between between what we're talking about here Brad but um that, that's the greatness of La La Land you just want to keep revisiting the movie to find it so uh you can do that on HBO Max if you're interested I also watched uh, rear window for the first time in many many years and this movie is streaming on peacock and uh it has ads unfortunately but um luckily the ads are not in in too they're not too disruptive i noticed this was the first thing that i watched on peacock i specifically wanted to watch rear window with my wife who i don't think had ever seen it before and um I, you know, looked on all the streaming services and Peacock was the only place where it was streaming, but it was streaming with ads. So I was like, all right, fine. I guess I'll download Peacock, which is, you know, you can get it for free. You can download it for free and just watch stuff with ads on there. Uh, you don't have to subscribe to like the premium one where you have to pay for it. Um, so I was, I was like a little hesitant to do it, but I really wanted to watch the movie. So I was like, I guess I'll put up with these ads. And it really wasn't that bad of an experience at all. Um, especially because like the last 30 ish or maybe, maybe a little longer of the movie, they don't uh, insert any ads in there at all. And that's obviously 
good because that's when the movie is like building to this crescendo. Um, so it, you don't like get interrupted by a stupid insurance commercial that you've seen a bunch of times before already or whatever. So uh, I, I overall would recommend the experience of watching this movie on Peacock if that's the only way that you can see it because this movie is great. Uh, Jimmy Stewart is is so fantastic. Um, uh, Grace Kelly is really good too. I had forgotten how weird their relationship is because whenever the movie is not about what everyone thinks rear window is about, which is like him looking out the weird, you know, the, the rear uh, window of this apartment complex and seeing this potential murder and trying to figure out these clues. Whenever that's not happening on screen, Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly are like arguing about their relationship. And the, the, <laughs> the arguments make so little sense uh, in, you know, when viewed through a modern lens, it's sort of like, it's so old school. I mean, the movie came out in what the fifties or something. So it's, it's very much like couched in that, uh, that mindset where he's like, I am like, neither one of them is really like prepared to make any compromise, um, in their relationship. And it's just, it, it seems a little silly in, in hindsight, I guess. Um, we've, we've come far enough in, uh, in modern society where this doesn't seem like maybe, maybe it's just my bubble, but it just seems, um, <laughs> the, the argument that they have about, uh, you know, which one of them should live with the other one and like how one of them should change their career to, to, uh, live a life with the other one, um, just struck me as like, oh, wow, I've totally forgot that this was like a significant portion of this movie. Um, but all of the voyeurism stuff and, and the suspense there, uh, which is like the main thrust of the film is still so fantastic. Um, I, I also was surprised to rediscover like how, uh, not rushed, but just chaotic the final few minutes are. It's like Hitchcock does such a good job of setting things up so slowly and like establishing the geography of the area. And you know, every person so well in that in that courtyard you know exactly where people are supposed to be and what it means when they aren't there and um when grace kelly is, is climbing into the potential murderer's window it's so like you know nail biting and then the movie just sort of like comes to this like flurried conclusion where everything happens so fast and then all of a sudden it's over um and i i didn't remember um just how quickly everything sort of wraps up but uh man this movie it's just it rules so if you've not seen rear window or if you haven't seen it in a long time it's streaming on peacock right now and definitely recommend checking that out uh and then finally i watched safety last for the first time this is also on hbo max this is a silent movie it came out in 1923 and it's only 73 minutes long and um i think this might be one of the most recommendable movies that I have ever seen it because of it because it's so short and because it came out so early and because it is sort of like this perfect um distillation of everything that i know about silent film uh this movie is is terrific it's it's like it, it takes the the physicality from buster keaton movies and sort of like the the wit and and humor from charlie chaplin stuff and it combines them into this really incredibly well-paced uh movie that that builds to an iconic moment in cinema history where Harold Lloyd, the writer and star of this movie is hanging from the hands of a clock on the side of a building in Los Angeles. And it's, uh, it's thrilling. It's an incredible set piece, but all of the jokes and, and the, the romantic comedy elements and stuff leading up to it, I thought worked really, really well. Um, but really that, that, uh, you know, climactic set piece of him climbing the building and, and finding himself hanging on this clock tower is the thing that you sort of like, 
pay to see the movie for, so to speak. Um, and it, it really, I mean, it's not quite the same thing as like watching Free Solo, the the documentary about the guy who you know climbed El Capitan without a rope, but it, it sort of gave me a little bit of that same visceral, like, um, you know, holy shit, I can't believe they're actually doing this kind of experience. And then I like I had to look it up afterwards. Like what, you know, where did, where exactly did this film, how did they do this? And I realized that it's so impressive the way that um, they actually shot some of that stuff, because it, even though it, it really looks like it, um, it, he was not actually scaling this building that many stories up. Um, and they had, they came up with this really creative way of, uh, of using like early visual effects and camera tricks to make this look like it was way more dangerous than it was. And this was in 1923. I mean, this is like the, uh, the, the concept of motion pictures had only been around for like what, less than 30 years or something. Right. Like um, it's just very, very uh, impressive to me the way that um, this movie holds up and just serves as like this perfect distillation of everything that I want a silent movie to be. So that's called safety last and you can check it out on HBO max right now. Okay. And, uh, HT, not to call you out, but you didn't watch anything this week other than, you know, yoga classes? No. Or not yoga, your uh, ab tread challenge. Sorry. Yes, not yoga. Ab challenge. And um, not really. I've been, you know, still catching up with Better Call Saul and sleeping a lot because I lost sleep from the seance. <laughs> and um, <laughs> uh, I've been working on a project that will be launching soon. So, you know, that's happening. Tease, tease, tease. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating this week? Just a couple of new things. Um, I continued to work my way through the Lay's um, new flavors of chips that are inspired by uh, various locales around uh, the country. This time I tried the Carnitas Street Tacos flavor. Um, they're uh, a wavy uh, Lay's chip flavor, and they are really, really good. I'm not sure if they if they fully taste like carnitas street tacos, but they just have a general like taco seasoning kind of flavor that is just uh, really good. I actually, um, I like, I like using them in the same way that you would use like tortilla chips to, to dip in certain uh, kinds of dips and the seasoning works really well with things, um, you know, that you would normally dip tortilla chips in. So, uh, yeah, those those were very good. They were definitely better than the uh, the Philly cheesesteak chips. And then, um, so everybody knows toaster strudels, right? Um, invented by Gretchen uh, Wiener's dad. And uh, there's a new version that is branded uh, kind of like a cross promotion with Golden Grams, uh, the graham cracker uh, cereal, where it is the the filling is like um both a marshmallow and chocolate um filling and then the fr uh the like the frosting packet that you get that you put on the actual toaster strudel is like a graham cracker flavored uh frosting and they're they're really good i'm not sure that i would i feel like they're uh, a good breakfast pastry like the rest of the toaster strudels are even though it could be argued that they're they're probably just better for dessert overall anyway but i think these are good as like a a dessert option as opposed to like a, a typical toaster strudel breakfast option and where can you find this uh, they should be uh, everywhere. I, I've noticed that it, it might be easier to find them um, at Myers stores or stores that might be owned by the same company because that's that's where I found mine and that's where I saw some of the 
uh, Instagram accounts that I follow that always keep up to date on new snacks and stuff had found them. Um, so Myers is probably your best bet, but I, I think that you can uh, get them in any grocery store. Okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing? Uh, the past few weeks, I've talked about the Alien RPG I've been running, and it's part of my plan to like make it accessible so people can come in if they wanted to. I told, I told everybody up front, this would be a five-episode arc, so to speak. At the end of the fifth session, uh, we'll reach a definitive ending, and we'll see what we'll do from there. If you want to keep playing this game, we can, or we can switch to another game, or we can all step away for a bit. And at the end of the fifth episode, so to speak, of the Alien RPG, uh, most of the characters were dead. Uh, most of the cast was dead. All the main characters had died horribly. Um, <laughs> I'll never forget that one of the uh, players uh, kept on rolling so well to escape a face hugger from an egg. Um, at, and he just kept on rolling so well to escape, but he just, at the very end died just the most dramatic, tragic, noble death. I, I love games like this for this reason, that you, you could not have scripted his the obscene level of luck he had escaping until he suddenly swiftly died. Anyway. Everybody died. It's a very high lethality uh, game design. Only one person escaped, flying away in a spaceship. And then the, when it was over, the players immediately requested a season two. So season two of Alien RPG begins on Sunday with the one survivor surrounded by a brand new cast of people uh, ready to die. So we'll see how this goes. So if you're looking into a new RPG to play, uh, this one's proven popular with my group, especially if you don't mind games where you may have to recreate a new character because your character died suddenly and horribly uh, beyond your control. Okay. I think that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you on Monday. Peter. Uh, Jacob, wait, we got to get ready for the DC fandom. Like, where we need to prepare. It starts uh, tonight. Oh, no. Morning? It starts tomorrow morning, unfortunately. Um, yeah. We're, believe me, we're, we're all dreading the fandom, Peter. We're all dreading. Yeah, yeah we don't, we don't have any time. We don't have time for, like, some insults. We got to, like. That, but that's my point, though, Peter, is that. HT needs going, some sleep. Going into she hasn't a, been sleeping. Going into a Saturday full of work means we need some levity. It means we need some jokes. It means we need to brighten our spirits ahead of the fandom. So I've opened the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts for posts, caustic quips, and impolite put downs by Louis A. Safian. I hope the page 299 features <clears throat> Peter. He uses fine rouges to bring out his cheekbones, good mascara to bring out his eyes, good lipsticks to bring out his lips. But when he gives a good sneeze, it brings out his teeth. I, uh... Hmm. Peter, do I need to repeat I, it? No, no, I... Uh, Peter, Peter uses fine rouges to bring out his cheekbones, good mascara to bring out his eyes, good lipsticks to bring out his lips. But when he gives a good sneeze, it brings out his teeth. Can anybody explain this to me? Like, like teeth seems, seems to indicate like I'm like... Peter, you're only making this longer than it has to be. Peter, Peter uses fine <laughs> rouges to bring out his cheekbones. Good mascara to bring out his eyes. Good lipsticks to bring out his lips. But when he gives a good sneeze, it brings out his teeth. Because he sneezes like a horse? Is that like uh, a, is that a saying well, that Jacob read it again? Go ahead, yeah. J- Jacob. What, what if I'm wearing a mask? Peter. Peter uses fine rouges to bring out his cheekbones. Good mascara to bring out his eyes. Good lipsticks to bring out his lips. But when he gives a good sneeze, it brings out his teeth. 
okay. We, yeah, we, we, we can yeah. move on. I'm good. Oh, HT. Her hair has been dyed so often, her dandruff is technicolored. Oh, you know, actually, this kind of applies. <laughs> <laughs> I've dyed my hair, and I do have a dry scalp. Oh, Ben Pearson, he's a suicide blonde, dyed by his own hand. <laughs> I actually kind of like that. Oh, I'm putting yeah. that on my tombstone. <laughs> Chris Evangelista, he's not exactly fading. He's dying, but dying spelled D-Y-E. Ah, it's true, but they're real dying. <laughs> and uh, Brad, he's not bald-headed. He just has flesh-colored hair. Oh, I, I do have thin hair, so this hits close to home. But anyway, uh, Peter uses fine rouges to bring out the, his cheekbones. Good yep. mascara to bring out his okay. eyes. Good lipstick to bring out his lips. But when have, he gives have a good, good weekend, teeth, everybody. Bring out his teeth. Have a good weekend. Bye. Peter uses.